An old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host, Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll, and this week we are going to be talking about the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram. Now, the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, for many, is where a lot of people start when it comes to ceremonial magic. I, I have seen it or versions of it where people have made slight modifications, which is totally fine in general with magic, that you adapt it towards your specific needs. But I would almost argue it is more so appropriate with the Lesser Ritual the Pentagram for reasons that we're going to explain in a little bit. Um, but I've, I've seen it in many, many communities. I've, I've been exposed to versions of it in everything from uh, Wicca to people who practice more Abrahamic magic to the Golden Dawn, uh, Thelema, um, really just a lot of different types of ceremonial interested people have uh, kind of clinged on to this particular one. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that that go back to its origins, which we'll talk about. But I think even that being said, I think that it's actually one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented rituals in a modern context. Because even though it does act as that cornerstone, that, that foundation on which we build a lot of modern day ceremonial magic, not to say that there are not things before it, uh, historically, which are uh, down the same road of thought. But um, even though it acts as that cornerstone, I think a lot of times it catches a lot of hate. And sometimes that hate comes from people who would um, just hate any kind of magic. Like the idea that there is magic would really offend certain spiritual paths, certain religions. Definitely more on the traditional side. But a lot of the symbols that get used in it, it's in its, in its original form, the way it was originally written. Um, a lot of the symbols are Abrahamic in their origins. And so the other group that I see it catch a lot of hate on is from the group of people who were raised in a, a religious household um, where they felt that they should leave that perspective and went and found magic. And then they have attributed some of the negative experiences they had with religion with the entire set of Judeo-Christian um, symbols. So um, from time to time it'll happen where somebody will, um, I don't know, they'll just feel... They'll, they'll, they'll feel that the personal attacks that they suffered uh, from individuals of that tradition were uh, targeted at them from the religion itself. And so a lot of times in magic, I do meet quite a few people who have an aversion to uh, Judeo-Christian symbols in general. And so it, it's a weird ritual because it gets flack from both sides. It gets flack from like traditional mainstream religion because it is magic. It gets flack from magic because it has Judeo-Christian symbols in it. And so it's it's kind of funny because I think it has a lot of value. Um, and fully understanding it, if that's even possible, uh, because it is such an in-depth system, is incredibly important for understanding our history, where we came from, and why we do things the way that we do. And we'll, we're going to paint kind of a, a picture as to just how influential I think a lot of those systems are um, later. But to kind of break it down, the, the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, it, it acts as the foundation of Golden Dawn magic. And because of that, it leads into a lot of later materials and then becomes its own magical system. 
And one of the things that I feel needs to be stated about the Lesser Ritual of Pentagram is that a lot of times people think of it as a single ritual. A ritual that you perform like this from start to finish. You're done. Walk away. You know? But I don't view the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram in that light. I, I think about it as its own magical system. Similar to how every tradition has their specific ways of going about it. Um, what, whatever the spiritual attainment or energies you're trying to work with or whatever ritual purposes that you're setting out for yourself, um, often those systems will have an entire system that is available to the individual. If we were to look at like um, hoodoo or uh, palimambe or you know, like those types of uh, religious concepts, we see an entire branch of magic evolve from those, from those interesting perspectives. And what it ends up doing is it is a, a very on-the-fly kind of thing where, sure, there might be a one specific ritual that you might use for this one thing, but... You know, you could you could adapt that ritual. You could change it. You could bring in this system or this symbol or um, dance in this way or play these types of whatever the thing is. You know, use these types of colors in your in your spectrum. Whatever the thing is, you you see like an entire system of magic emerge. And I, and I would argue that the lesser ritual, the pentagram, and its later forms, which we will talk a little bit about, we're not going to go in depth into them, but that they too are entire magical systems that it's not one small ritual that does something that it's an adaptive uh, system of change and connecting you to certain things so one of the things that i wanted to do at the very beginning of this episode is kind of offer what a lot of other people might word it as so i went and i found a definition of the lesser ritual the pentagram to see what most people think that it's for. And I think this kind of demonstrates exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, this one reads, The Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, LBRP, is a ceremonial practice commonly employed in Western magical traditions to establish a sacred and purified space. I would say that's true to a certain point, but that uh, it leaves out a lot of details. It says, Through a combination of symbolic gestures, visualizations, and invocations, the practitioner invokes the presence of divine or benevolent forces while banishing negative or chaotic energies. By tracing the pentagrams in the air and invoking the four elements, the LBRP is believed to create a protective boundary and cleanse the ritual space, providing a balanced environment for magical or spiritual work. While variations may exist, the overall aim of LBRP is to establish a purified and protected space for the practitioner's practice. I would say that if the only point was banishing of the space, purifying and making a space sacred. I'm not saying that LBRP cannot and is not often the tool utilized to do that. But I am saying that if that was the whole point, that you might have missed some of the point of the lesser ritual of the pentagram. Uh, there is a lot more to this. The way that it uh, functions and the way that it cleans a space is, is unique in itself. It, it works in a lot of ways by connecting you to something higher and then um, act the, the four quadrants kind of act as stabilizers in that. It, it's a very interesting thing because I would almost make an argument that even in its banishing form, you're doing more invoking than you would with other traditional banishings. And so I, it's a really interesting ritual, but it also acts as this like foundational piece that we all build a lot of different rituals on, whether we realize that we're being directly influenced by the writing of the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram or not, it, it its system pops up everywhere post its publication. So let's talk a little bit about the abbreviations first. I think that's a really approachable place and kind of see where that conversation gets us. So first off, there are a lot of different acronyms for the ritual, the pentagram. Um, just to lift off, list off a couple, 
there's the Lesser Banishing Ritual of Pentagram, which is LBRP. That's probably the one where I see most people. If you Google LBRP, a whole bunch of stuff is going to come up. If you Google one of the other ones of this, you might not find as much stuff, even though it is kind of all related together in this one magical system. So I would say that's the most prominent form. And then the flip side of that being LIRP. Now, I'm going to really quick shotgun through a whole bunch of different um, different abbreviations. The point is to be kind of overwhelming. And in a minute, I'm going to break down exactly what all of those are so that they're easier for people to digest. So uh, we got LBRP, LBRH, GBRP, SBRH, SBRP, SBRH, GIRH, SIRP, SIRH. These are all different acronyms for it. And then a lot of times you'll see one of those acronyms and something tagged on to the end of it. So you might have like LBRP of fire or GIRH of mercury or SBRH of Malkuth or, you know, there's all sorts of different ones. And I want to make that digestible for people because one of the things that I run into a lot is I'll be online and we'll be in some kind of a forum where uh, people who are early on in their magical careers are um, reaching out for ideas and questions and really 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 often because there are so many different versions of this stuff that we're talking about the people who have been around for a really long time will shorthand it because it's tiring for us to type out all of that all the time over and over and over again uh, and so you'll see those abbreviations used a lot and then inevitably whether the person that asked the question understands or not either that person or someone else in the chat who's watching to also get answers is going to very, very quickly ask, LBRP, what is that? And then we end up actually having to, you know, go back, explain it, kind of break some of these differences down. And I think in the long run, we end up typing more, even though our goal was to, you know, shorthand it a little bit. So I want to kind of break it down a little bit because I think that that's valuable. So if we look at the example of LBRP, there's four letters. Four different words get abbreviated in there. L, B, R, and P is Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram. And the reason why there's four is because there's some other categories where you might see some other different version of something. You also have, uh, so you've got L, which is lesser. Of course, saying lesser suggests maybe there are some bigger ones. So one of those bigger ones is uh, G for greater. So you'll see lesser and greater rituals of the pentagram. And then there's also a third one that we do see float around sometimes called the supreme. So supreme ritual of the pentagram or supreme banishing ritual of the pentagram. So that might be a, an L for lesser, a G for greater, or an S for supreme. Um, there, that second letter in the acronym uh, is uh, B for lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. You can see that sometimes as invoking or is banishing and so that's uh, either going to be the letter b or the letter i so you might hear it as lbrp or lirp and a lot of times if people are asking very general questions or answering very generally you can see this letter omitted entirely a lot of times it'll just be lrp for lesser ritual of the pentagram because if we're discussing something that applies to both there's not really a need to um you know, to distinguish the banishing versus the invoking form. It's just the lesser ritual of the pentagram, so LRP. So you'll see that from time to time. Banishing versus invoking, that's going to be things like, um, banishing is going to be like cleaning. You're probably going to find yourself doing that before bed as opposed to early in the morning. It's going to be your sanitation kind of ritual. You're trying to clean the space in order that it uh, doesn't get putrefied by outside forces. Um, whereas the invoking ritual, the LIRP, is for invoking either general energy, but from its direct source, and therefore in a very clean way, um, or uh, you might see invoking done for specific types of energy. So let's say maybe you were doing like a lesser invoking ritual where uh, you're specifically trying to invoke fire energy, you might use the lesser invoking ritual, the pentagram, in fire in order to, um, you know, invoke specific forces. 
that's usually for charging up the self, connecting the self to certain energies. It might be for charging things like a talisman or, you know, something along those lines. It might just be for working with a specific thing in order to analyze a specific aspect of yourself. Usually that's something where most traditions will teach you to do that right after waking up in the morning. Um, I think there's quite a bit to that of waking up in the morning with an invocation and going to bed before just before bed doing a banishing because you will find yourself a little bit, especially after you've been doing this for a while and you're getting better at it, you will find yourself a little bit more tired and lethargic after the banishing ritual, a little bit more charged and energetic after an invoking ritual. One of the things that I did very early on before I started experimenting with doing daily ritual was uh, everyone told me, invoke in the morning, banish at night. And I said, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to listen to that. I want to see exactly why you tell me that. Now, it didn't necessarily mean that I didn't trust where the information was coming from. And it didn't mean that I was, um, I don't know, just being rebellious or uh, short-sighted or um, hard-headed about it. For me, I wanted to experiment with the why do people tell you that so that I was a little bit more informed as to the difference between the two. And so for a couple of weeks, I always did an invocation before bed and a banishing first thing in the morning. And I did find um, that it was a lot more lethargic throughout the day and that the when I could get to sleep, my dreams were very, very interesting. <laughs> they were they themselves found themselves charged, and it was very easy for me to do things like lucid dream. I have already done a lucid dreaming episode in this podcast. There are significantly better ways, uh, much less uh, intrusive in your life ways to uh, lucid dream, and very regularly. And I would not say that this is a useful way to lucid dream, but it was one of the side effects that I was noticing. The other side effects that I was noticing is an incredible difficulty getting to sleep and staying asleep. And so I was tossing and turning all night. I was, you know, I was having trouble in that kind of a, a space. So I think there's definitely something to what they say about banishing and invoking in specific times of day if you're going to do both of them every single day. Um, I would say experimentation is for the most part okay as long as you understand how to write the ship it's not going to cause a destructive situation in your life you're just going to very quickly realize there's a reason why they tell you to do it this way and i think that that can be empowering because you can see well for one you can see that the people who are teaching you are not just full of shit they they uh they know what they're talking about you know and that's one way that experimentation especially with with very careful note taking is an incredibly positive way to do that Okay, so that's the L and the B. R is always the same in all of these because it stands for ritual. So we're going to skip over to the fourth letter, which is uh, P. P stands for pentagram. And I know what you're thinking. God damn it, now there's shapes. Um, <laughs> so there's a couple of different forms of this. There's the pentagram or the hexagram ritual. The pentagram ritual is going to deal with microcosmic forces. It's going to be more elemental in nature. It's going to deal with like, you know, earth, air, fire, and water. It's going to deal with your internal states. It's going to be um, a, a very, very good starting point. I would always start with the microcosm and get that into alignment before you do anything with the macrocosm um, or affect your relationship with that macrocosm, depending on what your interpretation of how that works is. Um, yeah, pentagram's definitely a better starting point. Hexagram rituals, let, for example, the lesser banishing ritual of the hexagram, is more microcosmic or macrocosmic forces. That's going to deal with like things like planetary forces or like the horoscopes, you know, the zodiac, um, maybe even as big as like the Sephiroth. Uh, and that's going to be up to you if you engage with forces that are that large. Um, I would not necessarily say that it's a bad thing, so long as you're ready for it. Another reason why I would suggest working on the pentagram before the hexagram is not necessarily that the hexagram is, like, bigger and better, but that it, it makes sense. If you, if you have a bucket and you're trying to carry water home, it makes sense to plug the holes first, right? So there's definitely something to be said about 
the pentagram ritual getting the microcosm into alignment, your own internal stuff into alignment before you try to fill the vessel with some, you know, some liquid. Um, I think that's a, a pretty decent analogy that kind of paints why I think that people should do it. Another thing that I should say right here uh, about pentagram versus hexagram rituals is the traditional way that they're, um, that they're performed. So similar to how there's like a specific timing that you would do your banishings and your invocations. So if you if every single day you're going to do an invocation and a banishing, which is a very positive thing to do, I strongly suggest it to people that have the determination to, you know, spend a half hour in ritual every day. It's a difficult thing to do, building up a habit, maintaining that habit. Uh, I've been doing it for years and I still find myself uh, beating my head against the wall about just the, the human element of like, oh, but I'm watching TV. Oh, but I want to go to bed. You know, that, that kind of garbage. Uh, I feel it too. But if you are one of the people who's going to do that, invoke in the morning, banish at night, pentagram and hexagram rituals have a similar kind of thing uh, that doesn't get stated a lot, where you should do the pentagram ritual before the hexagram ritual. Let's say you're working with the hexagram ritual. You should still be doing the pentagram ritual every single time, right? Um, and it, a lot of that has to do with that whole bringing the microcosmic energies into alignment before you start stacking other things on top of it. Uh, promotes harmony and makes the system more viable. And so, for example, if you were using the hexagram ritual to, I don't know, invoke something to like charge a talisman, let's say, because hexagram ritual is going to work a lot with planetary energies. So let's say you wanted to work with like, <sighs> what's the one everyone uses? Everyone uses Jupiter, right? I would assume that the first one that a lot of people work with is Jupiter because it has all these positive uh, connotations of growth and wealth and fortune and all those kind of things. Uh, so let's say, for the sake of an example, you've decided that you're going to do a lesser invoking ritual of the hexagram. What I would do first is I would banish with the pentagram and then I would banish with the hexagram so that the microcosmic and macrocosmic effects are cleansed sanitation it's important and then i would go through and invoke with the pentagram and invoke with the hexagram um some people will just do the invocation of the hexagram i like i like to have a very generic but charged mi uh, microcosm before i start working with a macrocosm different people are different i i do know people who will banish with the pentagram hexagram and then will only invoke with the hexagram that is another method of doing it. It just comes down to how you view it and what you're getting out of it. I would say experimentation is better than my own personal opinion there because the argument against my way of doing it would be that you want to banish out everything and then only invoke in what you're using. So that would be the argument against what I would usually do. Okay. So that was a whole bunch of information. Uh, we've officially made it through... <laughs> What are we sitting at? 20 minutes later, and we know what the letters stand for. Woo! Let's party. All right. Um, okay, so I'm just going to spitball a couple of them. Um, there's, a, there's what, 16 or so? I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot of different versions of... No, it's not 16 because it is 12 because the R doesn't change. Um, okay, so lesser so i'm going to say an abbreviation i'm going to give you a pause and then i'll tell you what the abbreviation stands for and hopefully i've done a good enough job explaining the difference that you not only can dissect what the letters mean but also what they're used for so uh if we were to s oh i didn't talk a lot about supreme i didn't talk about supreme i should talk about supreme okay so there's lesser greater and the supreme ritual um the lesser pan banishing ritual of pentagram is going to be the easy starter mode version. It's going to use the same pentagram in every single corner, um, which is that of the banishing of Earth. The reason why they do that is because of the Kabbalistic association of the elements, the way that the uh, elements fall on the Kabbalistic tree of life. It puts uh, Earth very, very far away from all of the other things. And it's very receptive towards all the other types of energy. And it's kind of built up as a crystallized, manifested version of all of those other things which sit higher than it on the tree. And so when you banish with earth energy, you banish everything. 
Um, it's not as specific on the type of energy that you're banishing. It's just a very general banish, use, you know, get rid of everything kind of a method. Um, greater banishing ritual of pentagram is a little bit of a step up from there. When you're, when you're doing your pentagrams on the different quarters, you're using actual elemental pentagrams, not one single element across all of them. You're going to use specifically the banishing fire on the fire side. You're going to use specifically the banishing water on the banishing water side, uh, etc. Right? Um, that gives it a little bit more of like a specific and a little bit more of a potent feel. I will also say that the difference majorly between lesser and greater is that greater is much more relying on the elemental nature of the elements. Whereas lesser is working more in a general spiritual tone where you're taking Malkuth and you and physical reality and you're connecting it up the tree, hopefully all the way up to, to uh, Kether. Um, you're, you're connecting it up to divine sources and allowing that divine source to do some of the banishing for you. Whereas by the time you start working with greater, the ritual is a little bit differently. It's going to use different words of power and it's going to use like different names of God on the different quarters. Um, it's going to use the actual elemental um, pentagrams. There are also some other things that are going on with it that often get left out of scripts. I do not believe that that is any type of a secrets situation. I think that a lot of times it was just not notated very well. Um, but, for example, when Crowley wrote down Greater Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram, he also throws in a couple of other pentagrams that get used at the four quarters and in the center of the circle. And um, those would be the um, uh, active versus passive spirit pentagrams. So there's a little bit more going on in the Greater. Um, the way I like to kind of think about it is that if you're doing something of an elemental nature in specific or a very important working, you might find yourself using greater, but it does take a lot more practice because, you know, you're, you're, it's a progress of learning how to operate within one of these types of systems. And so you'll find that the uh, lesser ritual works great for beginners and helps you to understand how to move invisible forces. Whereas the greater ritual tends to, um, just be a little bit more potent, but is not as valuable if you haven't already mastered the Lesser Ritual of Pentagram. And then the Supreme Ritual of the Pentagram is interesting because I don't really think that it is that much more Supreme. Um, the major difference between Greater and Supreme is that uh, the Golden Dawn, as it exists today, often calls the Greater Ritual the Supreme Ritual. So they have the Lesser and the Supreme. And Thelemic traditions and a lot of mainstream traditions have lesser and greater. They don't have it supreme. If I were to nitpick enough to draw a very specific line between greater and supreme, and, and I, would, I would argue that there's nothing that says you couldn't do this in both of them, but that the tradition of thought has taught this to be added into supreme. And since greater and supreme are basically the same thing by two different schools uh you could uh extend this over to greater if you wanted to but if you had to draw a line between the two of them the supreme ritual includes uh enochian calls um in the midst of the ritual um so utilizing some of the enochian tables from uh johannes d uh from queen elizabeth the first court um yeah so okay and since we went back and talked about the abbreviation of the first letter, let's say that uh, the abbreviation was S-I-R-H. So S-I-R-H would be the supreme invoking ritual of the hexagram. Let's say it was um, G-I-R-H would be the greater invoking ritual of the hexagram. It's basically the same ritual, depending on which school you're learning from. Uh, let's say it's L... I don't know, L, say L-I-R-P. That would be the lesser invoking ritual of the pentagram. Um, exactly, you get the idea. So in particular, I often see all of them um, just listed as L-R-P um, or the ritual of the pentagram because even though there's the hexagram side of it, a lot of times it just kind of gets truncated down. 
And the starting point for all of that, that whole system, is very much the Lesser Vanishing Ritual of the Pentagram. It's the perfect starting spot. So, um, in order to look at the script, because I think that it's a really good idea to immediately kind of dive in and look at the script, um, I think it's important to say which script we're going to utilize. And the reason for that is that there have been a lot of publications of this over time, and it's very easy for us, if we figure out who the author was and when they were alive, it's very easy to figure out who learned what from who and where the changes come from. <laughs> and it's actually really interesting because if you want to figure out who was part of which mystery schools, <laughs> uh, this is one of the methods we do to do it. Uh, or who learned what from who within that mystery school, this is one of the methods that we do it with. Uh, so basically we take the ritual and we look at the history of it. The origins of the lesser ritual of the pentagram are incredibly shrouded in mystery. Um, Regardi first wrote about, he wasn't the first to write, but one of the things he wrote very early on about the ritual of the pentagram was talking about the specifically the lesser ritual forms. And he wrote, these two pentagrams are in general use for invocation or banishing. So he's talking about the lesser banishing and the lesser invoking ritual of the pentagram. He said, these two pentagrams are in general use for the invocation or banishing, and their use is given to the neophyte of the first order of the Golden Dawn under the title of the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram. This Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram is only of use in general and unimportant invocations. It is, its use is permitted to the outer that neophytes may have protection against opposing forces, and also that they might form some idea of how to attract and to come in communion with spiritual and invisible things. So uh, that was Israel Regardi written in The Golden Dawn um, and uh, in the seventh edition of The Golden Dawn book. Uh, it's in book four, page 362, if you want to go look at the context that that was taken in. But it does two things. I think it's a really good quote for two reasons. Number one, it kind of illustrates exactly what we were just talking about when we were talking about specific pentagrams being used as very general form and this idea of daily practice, even though you're not trying to do some specific working. Um, it, it paints that picture of the unimportant invocations, general and unimportant, um, meaning you're not like crafting something today or you're not doing some special ceremony today. You're just working with it in order to learn how to protect and attract and come into communication with certain spiritual and invisible things. Uh, so those are the two things that I think are really, really important. Um, it also points out that the use of this ritual was given to neophytes of the first order of the Golden Dawn. So the Golden Dawn had two orders within it, had the outer order and the inner order. So that's where he says its use is permitted to the outer. We, we permit those who are in the outer instead of the inner sanctuary to utilize this ritual so they can, you know, gain this tool. Um, that to me paints a couple of things. Number one, the ritual is obviously very worked into the Golden Dawn system of magic. Uh, number two, the neophytes were given it under the name of the lesser ritual of the pentagram, but that that was not the whole system. They were literally giving them a little slice of the, of the pie and saying, Hey, you can use this one. This is how you would do that. Which kind of alludes to the idea that in the upper order and the inner order, they were uh, actively using the entire system, not just the lesser ritual, the pentagram that once an individual moved up out of neophyte and uh, up to higher stuff that they would, be able to utilize the entire system of magic they wouldn't be restricted to just the lesser ritual the pentagram i think it's a really good point to to be made here because if you are in the process of like working through some kind of formalized teaching and uh they give you the lesser ritual the pentagram um it has a lot of value and is often given to neophytes for a reason you know and this is this according to isa regardi this is the reason why they were doing that and it also paints this idea that the golden dawn were actively using it at the time. So who's the author? Uh, well, here's the problem. We are not sure. Blatantly stated, I'm not sure who wrote the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram. I was not there. We believe that 
the lesser ritual the pentagram as it was as it is written today was probably authored by Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers who was one of the founding members of the Golden Dawn um him and William Westcott um had acted as incredibly influential members as they had uh, founded the Golden Dawn. And Westcott in particular had a friend named Kenneth McKenzie, and they were initiated into some form of Freemasonry. Uh, I don't know all of the details on that, but if I remember correctly, it was not just the traditional Freemason organization that exists in my area today. Uh, but that it was one of the many offshoots. And after Mr. McKenzie's passing, Westcott was going through his uh, estate. They left his uh, his estate to him due to the bonds of fraternalhood. And uh, he had often... McKen- McKenzie and Ma- Westcott and Mathers had all been pretty interested in the occult for many, many years. And... Um, they found a, a document that they call the, the Cypher Manuscript. You'll sometimes see it as Cypher MS. And no one's really sure where the Cypher Manuscript came from. We know that it was in Mackenzie's uh, belongings. And it is possible that Mackenzie was the author. But that it is also possible he was taking notes of some other outside source. And that source has not uh, come to light in a modern day the cipher manuscript itself disappeared for many many years and there is a version that has come out that claims to be the actual cipher manuscript it is available online if you'd like to look at it it is in a substitution cipher which is where you take um, a a different letter and substitute it for the letter so if you write down i don't know a sentence and uh, let's say their sentence is, this is the Cypher manuscript. And then you changed all the letter T's to the letter A. And so that first letter of this is the Cypher manuscript. Uh, and then the T at the end of manuscript would be changed to A's. And then you would just go through the whole alphabet and do that. That's an example of a Cypher manuscript. Um, one of the more popular Cypher manuscripts is the Caesar, in, uh, the Caesar manuscript, where you take the alphabet and shift it a couple of letters in one direction. That's probably the most uh, easily recognizable for most people. Where you got your decoder ring that you got from your Ovaltine in the Christmas story, and you you s- turn the outer dial so that B equals A, and then you read your secret message. That is exactly what a cipher manuscript is. That's the Caesar cipher manuscript. Um, there are others, and in this particular case, it was substituting s- letters for symbols. It was not written in the Latin alphabet. Uh, like we would expect today, they were substituting the letters of the alphabet for other strange symbols. And um, if anybody that knows modern-day cryptography can decode the cipher manuscript in a manner of minutes, it's not a very difficult thing to do nowadays. We uh, understand the methods to do that. Um, That being said, there's some manuscript that the Golden Dawn used to formulate the beginning of the Golden Dawn. Now, some people have claimed that that version that it floats around online is not real. Some people have floated the idea that there never was a cipher manuscript and that all of the ideas present are that of the founding members. But um, the the tale is that in Mr. McKinsey's uh, collection was this document. And something that can definitely be said about the document is that it lays out a lot of ideas that um, are widely available in 1888, which is when the Golden Dawn formulated. Um, Concepts like Jewish prayer, Christian prayer, the work of Eliphas Levi, um, the Kabbalah, and the Cypher Manuscript also goes into depth into taking the tarot cards as they existed in that time period and applying them over to the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. That kind of gives us a window to understand exactly when this happened because the the tarot cards, the first versions of the tarot cards didn't have the same trump cards as that we use today. Uh, And so you can kind of pinpoint when the manuscript had to have been written based on what cards it claims are the trump cards, the major arcana. 
Um, so it it everything that's in the document is heavily available in 1888, and that makes a lot of people nervous to make a claim that this is actually an ancient um, system. The belief is that while cipher manuscript lays out the basics of a system of magic that is clearly the lesser ritual, the pentagram and its later adaptions that the actual writing of the script, the lesser ritual, the pentagram and starting with these particular symbols and uh, here use this one while you're still a neophyte uh, was probably written by Mathers is what the public opinion is. So then the question becomes, where did he publish it? Right. Uh, so Mathers wrote, what, one, two, three, four, five, five books throughout his life? Temple of Solomon the King, or, wait, hang on, was it Magic of Solomon the King? The Key of Solomon the King, the Tarot, uh, Book of Sacred Magic of Abramel and the Mage, Book of the Goetia, he started, someone else finished, um, and the Kabbalah Unveiled, which was a translation of the Zohar first three books of the Zohar. Um, well, the problem is that nowhere in his published writings did he include anything of the sort. Um, you know, most of those are just translations of other stuff, and the ones that aren't um, don't even go remotely into Golden Dawn material in that respect, in any kind of formalized ritual. The, the ritual itself was actually first published by Aleister Crowley. It was published in 1909 in a book called Liber O Valmanis at Sagitta, subfigure 4. And this was uh, published in The Equinox, volume 1, number 2. It was published again in 1929, and Crowley published it as a an AA publication in Class B, which means that it is... Um, his Class A publications were literal scripture not to be changed in the slightest bit. His Class B were highly refined ritual and manuals that were to be studied by the individual, but that were open for interpretation. Um, so that's the first time it gets published. But Crowley never claimed to be the author of the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, and so one thing that I see happen a lot in this particular time period is that you find individuals claiming that Aleister Crowley wrote the Lesser Ritual, the Pentagram, and that is not the case. Uh, a lot of times we'll see claims of like, oh, Crowley wrote the stuff the Wiccans do, because a lot of Wiccan magic has been based on the rituals of the Pentagram, and uh, it's not that he wrote the Lesser Ritual, the Pentagram, it's that he was the first to publish it. And this actually caused a lot of problems in his, in his social circle, because these were things that he had, you know, taken oaths in order to protect uh, while a member of the Golden Dawn. But then the Golden Dawn dissolved in what, 1903? 1902? 1903? Somewhere in that range. I want to say 1903 off the top of my head. And this book wasn't published until 1909. There was not a Golden Dawn when he published this. But this did, in fact, uh, agitate his relationship with Mathers and cause a whole, you know... A whole thing. <laughs> it's it, we'll save that for another episode. There, a whole thing happened here. Um, I, later, it got published by Israel Regarde. Israel Regarde was a member of the Stella Matutina. Now, the Stella Matutina is not the Golden Dawn, but it was a Golden Dawn offshoot. So, in nineteen oh here it is nineteen oh three. I was right. Uh, in nineteen oh three, um, there's a fiasco created by Crowley uh, that leads to, in the long term, the fracturing of the Golden Dawn. Loyalists to Mathers stayed in an organization called the Alpha et Omega, uh, and the rest left for the Hermetic Society of the Morganroth, uh, which fractured again into the Stella Matutina and the Isis Arania. Isis Arania was one of the local lodges, and it fractured into its own body. If I remember correctly, Isis Arania was the name of the lodge in London that a lot of the events uh, with the Crowley fiasco had um, uh, occurred at. And when the fracture happened between the Stella Matutina and the Isis Arania, they became their own order. Uh, so it led to the Golden Dawn dissolving and fracturing in 1903 and some subsequent years into four separate orders. Aleister Crowley created a group called the AA. Uh, this is a really popular one that you'll see 
uh, around the Thelemic circles. Mathers uh, created the Alpha et Omega. Um, Arthur, Arthur Edward Waite created, uh, stayed with and made it its own body. It's hard to say that he created the Isis Urania because the Isis Urania was a lodge under the Golden Dawn, but it broke off and became its own organization called the Isis Urania, and uh, that was led by Arthur Edward Waite. And then Falcon made the Stella Matutina. So this is a really important thing because it kind of demonstrates how close Regardi is to the Golden Dawn, but how far he is from the Golden Dawn at the same time. Because he had initiated into the Stella Matutina, which its founding members were originally Golden Dawn, and they had taken a lot of the rituals and teachings from the Golden Dawn and created this, this splinter organization. The Alpha et Omega was basically, if you took the Golden Dawn, which was... The Golden Dawn was kind of this weird mix of Masonic and magic and some of the Christian um, symbols of... Uh, the Abrahamic traditions and just general occultism. And then there was this, this belief that, you know, the organization was going to create some new dawn of humanity, that there was some value and some reason that they were doing this. So the Alpha at Omega was once they broke off, they took the Masonic stuff and really drilled down into the Masonic stuff. It was almost like that particular group was more interested in the Masonic stuff than the other stuff. When they broke off, they, they drilled down into it. The AA is Crowley's Thelemic take on the Golden Dawn, which is very much those ideas of there being some new Aeon, some new... Not to say that he doesn't also take some of the occult focus with him when he goes, but it was very much focused around this idea of some new uh, period of, of humanity. The, the Isis Arania was uh, the Christian take on the Golden Dawn, and that makes a whole lot of sense if you look at the particular history on the fracturing, because a lot of the reason that the Golden Dawn fell apart in the first place was because Crowley, who was a um, an exciting character to be around. <laughs> That's how we'll word it. Uh, he was an exciting character to be around, uh, found himself surrounded by the, the more Christian individuals in the Golden Dawn, and they wouldn't let him up to certain levels, even though he had earned it, because he didn't fit what they believed to be their moral compass. And this is the Isis Arania's lodge that this is all occurring at. So that makes a lot of sense that that particular group would be the ones to take the keys for all the Christian stuff, right? And then the Stella Metatina is basically all of the occult-focused stuff from the original Golden Dawn. Um, the last surviving lodge of the Stella Metatina, I mean, I think they were around until... Uh, let's see. The last surviving one was 1978, all of uh, all but one of those closed in the 30s. There was one in between 78 and 30 that the, a lodge that closed in the 1970. So it gives you kind of an idea as to kind of where Regardi found himself in that spectrum of cascading fractures that was the Golden Dawn. Now, Golden uh, Israel Regardi in 1932 was uh, he was a member of one of the lodges which had closed in the 30s and so he was unaware of some of the other lodge that existed as i understand i could be wrong on that he was he was and and so he had started to publish some of his stuff in order to kind of protect this tradition that he believed to be dying not knowing that there was another lodge open until 78 um he published the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram, first in 1932 in a book called The Tree of Life. He published it again in 1937 in a book called The Golden Dawn. He published it again in 1938 in a book called The Middle Pillar. They're all fantastic reads. I very much enjoy his uh, writing style and would strongly suggest him in general as a very interesting and well-educated occultist. Um, we do see it pop up a little bit later in the timeline as well. Um, Gardner publishes it in his ancient book of shadows. I say ancient with air quotes around it because the book was published in 1954 and there is not a lot of archaeologically verifiable evidence for it having been a tradition that goes back farther. Now, obviously there are things within it that go back farther, but I, as, as far as I understand, there have not been a like word-for-word word 
replication of its type of system. Yeah, it was very much a more modern adaptation of some of this Golden Dawn stuff. It's very interesting. And then I think it's really important to note uh, to talk about some of the other notable uh, publications. Some mentions, if you will. So, um, Father J.C. Fitzgerald in 1915 was an Anglo-Catholic clergyman. Uh, he published a very Christianized version of the ritual. Diane Fortune in 1930 in a book called Psychic Self-Defense. She talks heavily about it, but it's not. I don't believe she actually published the ritual itself in there. She just talks at length about it to the point that a lot of people could put it together. Um, there's a publication from 2010 by a guy named Donald Michael Craig, fantastic author. He wrote a book called Modern Magic that goes over a whole magical system. It's fantastic. It's a good read. Um, I have very much enjoyed it. John Michael Greer in 1997 published a book called Circles of Power, where he published a version of it. David Shoemaker in 2013 published a book called Living Thelema, where he publishes a version of... I know he publishes the lesser uh, ritual, the pentagram... I can't remember if he publishes the greater ritual the pentagram i think he published he he talks in length about both of them but I, if i remember off the top of my head it's really hard for me to remember i don't think that he did and i think that's actually how i ended up speaking to him the first time was i reached out to him asking for details on it because he had uh not like posted a script of the ritual but he had talked about it enough that i was very interested in his work and then finally uh, this is a notable mention for a different reason. Uh, a lot of these other versions are very good versions to go take a look at. Um, and I know a lot of people um, have taken a lot from this individual, and I don't mean to um, cast him in a bad light, but Damien Eccles in 2018 wrote a book called High Magic, and in there he publishes a ritual titled The Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, but it has been highly modified. Um, there, He has taken... We'll, we'll dive into the script in a moment once we decide which of those scripts we should actually look at. But um, he's taken some very important symbols which are in the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, uh, misunderstood that those were those things, and put in new symbols in their places in order to answer the question of why is this here. And it, I have found... A lot of people over the years who uh, high magic was the first instance where they ran into the lesser ritual, the pentagram. And while I don't have an issue with people writing their own rituals, modifying as they need to, and even publishing those modifications, I think that it's difficult if you make a modification and then don't explain to people, hey, this is my version in the original version. It was written this other way. I like to use it this way. Because what you end up doing is little by little we erode our history and we, we remove, you know, the historical reasons for why we were doing things. Um, I think that it's a destructive practice to modify rituals without... If, if, he had, if he had just put a note in there saying that it was modified or if he had said, this is the Damien Eccles version of the Lesser Ritual of Pentagram, I would have no issue whatsoever with his version. But it is worth mentioning because a lot of people have read that version. Okay. So that's a ton of scripts. There's a ton of scripts. There's too many scripts. We can't talk about all of them. I don't think you guys want to hear me rant on about all of them. Which script do we actually use? Well, first off, use whatever makes sense to you. That's always going to be my answer. If somebody approaches me off of the street and they're like, hey, which one should I use? Which is the right one? My answer is the right one is the one that works. Always. Doesn't matter if I like it. If it's working for you, use that. That's the right way. But if we're going to have a conversation about the historical context of where this came from and why they used these particular symbols, we want to get to the oldest version possible so that it has less edits and people fixing it. And unfortunately, the first version didn't survive. We, we never got the Mathers version of the manuscript. It's not out there. And so we want to go to a couple of different older versions in order to identify all of the information and be able to piece together a conversation like that. And I believe that most of the information is available in the first two authors that published it. That uh, because both of them were members of the same tradition while it was living, 
and were able to uh, go into depth about that. There's enough from their writings and from their versions of the script for us to be able to piece together why things were done the way they were and what was done. And so I would say, for the context of just this one conversation, it's healthy to slim that down to just Crowley and Regardi. Now, Crowley and Regardi did know each other, uh, and Regardi wrote a fantastic biography about Aleister Crowley, which sometimes is on the critical side of Crowley's behavior, and sometimes is actually defending Crowley uh, from other authors. It's a very interesting read. It's called The Eye in the Triangle, and um, it's interesting to hear a perspective about Crowley from someone who, near the end of their life, they did not get along. Um, they were not. They were no longer friends while Regardi did hold admiration for the man. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is these two authors were contemporaries. They existed in a very similar period. Um, Regardi had entered into a short period of studying under Crowley. Um, and then had also, in his own right, learned through the living tradition that was the Stella Matutina. The combination of those two things um, leaves us with a very valid source for the information between Crowley and Regardi's stuff. And then I would also extend that a little bit. And I would say that it's important to look at some of the inspiration that led to this work. So the important occultists that were just before 1888 that um, helped to get the occult community talking about these particular symbols and ideas in the first place. Even though he never writes the lesser ritual, the pentagram, I think that the individual, Eliphas Levi, um, Eliphas Levi was a pen name. I think his, his full name was Alphonse Louis Constant. And uh, much of the lesser ritual, the pentagram, is inspired by Levi's work. There are sections which are derived in part from his work, a lot of the quarters, um, elemental associations, those kind of things do come directly from that. Um, they were so inspired by his work during this period that Aleister Crowley actually claims to have been a reincarnation of Eliphas Levi. Uh, and it's an, it's an interesting thing if you take a look at it, because uh, Levi died in May of 1875, and Crowley was born in October of 1875. So there's like five and a half months. <laughs> so if the waiting period between losing your last body and being issued your next one is five and a half months, uh, exactly, then uh, that that would lead that would lead it to be a little bit more credible. Uh, who knows? I, I don't know. I was not there. Um, but if nothing else, uh, individuals like Crowley, Mathers, Regarde, all held Elifus Levi's work to be of inspiration. And so it uh, it makes sense if we look at his work, how it has inspired some of this system. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say those three authors are probably the a good starting point for being able to dissect this ritual. But unfortunately, because we are missing the original one with a nice signature in the bottom, signed Samuel Mathers or whoever. I mean, it, I suppose it could have been Kenneth Mackenzie. I do not believe that it was. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Um, so Crowley had this to say, uh, and I, I want to, I want to leave this particular episode with this because in the next episode, we're going to do an actual deep dive into the script. So the actual, the actual episode next is going to go through the basic layout, through the script itself and dissect piece for piece, all of the different symbols that are present in there. This one was more about the history that led to this thing happening. Um, so I want to leave with this quote. Because, partially because I have stated already which script I'm going to use. And I have also stated some scripts that I don't like. So I want to make sure I close out on a note like this. Which is a quote from Libero Velmanis at Sagittaria, Subfigure 4, Section 2. This is by Aleister Crowley in The Equinox, Volume 1, or... The Equinox 1, Volume 2, Number 2. Volume 1, Number 2. It was such a weird numbering system for the Equinox. And it says this. These rituals need not be slavishly imitated. On the contrary, the student should do nothing the object of which he does not understand. Also, if he have any capacity whatever, he will find his own crude rituals more effective than the highly published or polished ones of other people. 
And I, I want to leave you guys with that because while we're going to be diving into these specific scripts and sources, that is not to say that there's a one particular way of doing it that's right. That's not to say that one particular author um, is like bad because they, you know, did something else. I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because I want to preserve our history because history really matters to me. I want to preserve our tradition. But when it comes down to it at the end of the day, you should use whatever script is working for you, even if it's not the one I suggest. So I'm going to leave you with that. And uh, good luck. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.